I was walking through a crowded Starbucks back when you could walk through crowded Starbucks, crowded any place, and it happened again. I recognized it for what it was right away, and, and I was ashamed. As I moved between the tables, I saw a guy on some kind of video phone call, not, I mean, this was before we were all on video phone calls all the time. And he was clearly enjoying himself. I mean, I glimpsed the screen for only a moment, but the other person was laughing too, and it looked like they might be enjoying themselves. But there was something about it. Maybe the guy was laughing a little too loudly or seemed self-conscious, or maybe I thought he was awkward. Or I don't know, I worried that the phone call wasn't going as well as he thought it was. And, and I was gripped with that recognizable feeling, which, it actually is for me at least two feelings. The first feeling when I'm joking about it with my friends is, well, I call it something like sadness about the human project. And it's just some kind of sadness about like all of our little human efforts, all of the little things we do to make a life. And, and just wait, because I, I mean, I know, I know how that sounds. I certainly know how it feels. The second feeling, which comes right along with it at the same time, it's always right there. It's some kind of, um, I mean, it's some kind of something with myself, disgust or disappointment for feeling sad in the first place. Because I don't actually have very many judgmental feelings about the ways that other people do their human project. Like, I don't care. In fact, I have very strong commitments to protecting people's right to live their lives and do their little human project in their own particular way. So why do I find myself in Starbucks or walking down a sidewalk or driving past a turnoff and feeling this sadness plus something? That day in Starbucks, right after it happened, I ran into Steven. He's tall and lanky and he's got a big easy laugh and a psychology office right around the corner. Hey, this isn't fair, I said, but uh, can I ask you your professional opinion about something? And we sat down at a table and I told him about the guy on the video call and my feeling, my feelings, the sadness, the judgment, the shame of it. The feeling I recognized from walking down a winter sidewalk one night in Boston and being gripped with sadness about the older woman walking by with her wig on crooked. The feeling I recognized from driving by a man who'd driven to a turnoff to feed some ducks there, apparently. Steven, I said, I hate that it makes me sad. Like, feeding ducks is fine. Being on a video call at a coffee shop is fine. Having your wig on crooked, it's fine. He only had 20 minutes, and he probably had not been planning on a psych consult on his coffee break anyway, so he just jumped in, and he said something to the effect of, well, you are judging them, and that feels bad because it's not really in line with your values. And he said, I wonder if part of why you're judging is that you worry that people see you and judge you for just living your little life. I mean, that, he said, that's based less in judgment than it is based in your own shame. Like, this conversation may have been more than Stephen was bargaining for. It was definitely more than I was bargaining for. I want to back up and tell you that I am reading Brene Brown extremely begrudgingly. Like, I get that she's smart and she's helped a lot of people and she's so quotable, but she's kind of perky, like with just the right amount of sass. I just kind of couldn't, you know? 
until a series of conversations, including this one with Stephen, I mean a series of conversations that took place over years, made me face that I deal with a lot of shame, that I'm prone to shame. And as everyone knows, if you want to deal with shame, you're going to have to read Brene Brown. When I went online very reluctantly to buy one of her books, I went through with the purchase, in part because of some reviewers who found the book very helpful. And in spite of some other reviews by people who hated her book so much that I was surprised they took time to write a review, much less read her book. One disgusted reader, I don't know, maybe some speaks for someone here, someone, someone wrote a review that said, I just can't relate. Like their tone seemed very angry about this book that no one made them read. I just can't relate. Who thinks about what other people think that much? Get a life. And actually, that negative review was also one of the ones that convinced me to get the book. Because, like, getting a life, that's part of my interest in taking a look at shame. So sign me up, I guess. I guess, in a sermon about shame, I'm just taking my chances with what you'll think of me. Someone who apparently thinks so much about what other people think about me that I not only need a Brene Brown book, but that I also judge other people in ways that I don't want to or even believe in. I guess in a sermon about shame, I'm saying something that I find shameful about myself. And it might not even strike you that way, this weird set of feelings I have. But shame is personal and particular and private. I mean, that's the nature of shame. What I find unspeakable, unsayable about myself is different from what you find unspeakable or unsayable about yourself. things, each our own. We bump around the world, each carrying our certainty that they are, in fact, unspeakable. And that gets in the way of all kinds of things, connection and love and belonging. For two millennia now, Christians have been talking about this woman at the well as someone bumping around the world with a lot of unspeakable secrets. She had five husbands, and the one she has now isn't her husband. Bum, bum, bum. She is an adulterer, we've been saying. She is a prostitute, we've been saying. She is cut off from her community, and that's why she's alone at midday, not the typical time to get water. We remind each other then. She meets Jesus, and he changes her life. And even for me, until very recently, this lived in my mind as one of the stories that ends with Jesus saying, lovingly, go and sin no more. But in fact, what happens is that he asks her about her husband, and she says, I don't have a husband, and Jesus says, that's right, you've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. And what happens next is that they never talk about it again in any way. The woman immediately takes his knowing her story as a sign that he's a prophet, that he knows things, that he's someone she can ask important questions of. As long as you're here, could I get your professional opinion? And her questions are not about her own self-worth or shame. They're theological 
political questions about the right way to worship and the differences between her people and his, divisions that ran so deep, she was surprised he'd asked her for a drink in the first place. I wonder why all these hundreds and hundreds of years we've made this story about her morality. I mean, after all, there are other stories in which Jesus tells people, go and sin no more. And the Bible in general doesn't hold back on calling people adulterers or prostitutes, so it seems like we'd know. I wonder why when we have no basis for it, we read into this story so much shame for her. Why we have judged her and what's in it for us if she's a sinner in a way that we can point to. I wonder if it's easier to judge her than to consider how we might be judged. Easier to make up backstories about her than to consider our own actual backstories, to think as a tradition about what her community thought about her more than we think about how we as a community think about others. Easier to judge how she's living her little life out there in the heat of day getting water. There's nothing even that says she's alone in the story. And it's a story that doesn't skimp on details, what time it is, the route Jesus took, the history of the well, why the disciples weren't there, they were getting lunch. For all we know, she's perfectly happy. For all we know, each one of her husbands had died and she'd had to grieve five partners. For all we know, given her time and place, the man she's living with is a family member sharing his household out of traditional obligation. For all we know, she has a loud, easy laugh. She's certainly ready to talk. As a tradition, we have walked through her story and judged her as shameful, but Jesus meets her as she is politically and theologically minded, open to conversation, I mean, yeah, atypically open across lines of propriety and custom, but so is Jesus. She's ready to engage, spar a little bit even. And she's thirsty, just like everybody else at the well. She doesn't have to have been immoral to need something that day. She doesn't have to have been cut off from her community to be in need of greater connection. She doesn't need to have sinned in some big, dramatic way to be yearning for the Messiah. Like everybody else, she's got her backstory and her questions, and when Jesus sees her, he sees all of that. And probably, I think, more than other people might have seen. More than two millennia of Christianity has seen, for the most part. He sees her, and they talk for, you know, 20 minutes or so, and, and in his seeing her, she realizes the truth of who he is. And in her realizing the truth of who he is, many others from her city come to recognize that too. Whatever her backstory, Jesus saw her fully, the way he saw, for my money, so many people. Whatever the particulars of her situation, he seemed to know them, and he offered her something, the same thing he offers to us and to all the preachers and people who called this woman names over the millennia. He offers her the chance to get a life, not one where we keep returning to the well always thirsty for something we don't have, but a life that is sustainable and renewable and renewing based on what is always springing up. The chance to get a life 
that is not always scrabbling around for proof that I'm okay, that no one will look at my little life and judge me. The chance to get a life in which I can bump around and not judge others, knowing that for all I find unspeakable in me, they have their own stuff, the things they find unspeakable in them, which may not be the things I pick out at all. Jesus seems to have found very little unspeakable. It's called sin, sin. When he forgave people in the ways that only God can, he said, you're forgiven. When he encountered people in pain, he asked, what do you need? And said, your faith has made you well. And to this woman, he said, there is more than just this mountain. There is more than just this well. There is a life that is beyond all that and deeper, a life that is eternal. To me, Jesus says, get a life. Think a little less about what other people think, including that book reviewer, including that no one cares if you read Brene Brown. To me, he says, I see you, and he tells me with compassion everything I have ever done. To me, he says, I have something better for you, so you'll never be thirsty again.